welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. Adolescents begin to use marijuana, alcohol, and other drugs for many reasons. Some use it to fit in with friends. Others seek the drug out of curiosity or to submit to peer pressure. Many, like the majority of our guest former patients, use it to relieve anxiety or some other intolerable feeling. Most adolescents are unaware of how marijuana and other drugs adversely impact their developing brains. So how do parents know if their children are using marijuana? Today's guest is Richard Capriola, the author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescence Substance Abuse. Richard spent 11 years working as an addiction counselor for Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, before retiring in 2019. Menninger Clinic is one of the top 10 psychiatric hospitals in the United States and specializes in the assessment, stabilization, and treatment of adults and adolescents with substance abuse and psychiatric disorders. During his tenure, He worked in the Adolescent Treatment Program and the Adult Comprehensive Psychiatric Assessment and Stabilization Program. Working closely with psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and nurses, Richard was responsible for comprehensive assessments and individual group counseling with patients diagnosed with substance use disorders. Prior to working with Menninger Clinic, Richard worked as a mental health crisis counselor in central Illinois. Now he's retired and lives with his wife in a suburb of Houston. He enjoys reading, writing, traveling, and spending time with his family. He has one son, two stepchildren, and four grandchildren. Richard, welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for inviting me to the program to speak on this issue of adolescent substance abuse. I retired from Menninger Clinic a little over a year ago, and after I left, I wanted to put together a resource for parents that would help them learn a little bit more about adolescent substance abuse, would give them warning signs, would give them information about what assessments and tests should be gotten if if they're concerned, and what resources are out there for them. So I put all this together in a book that runs about 100 pages, and and hopefully it is a, uh, a useful resource for parents who want to learn more about this subject and be better prepared to deal with it if and when it ever crosses their life. I'm really impressed with your book. It's really comprehensive. And there's something that I'd like to start our conversation with that I think 
most parents probably don't understand. As a retired special ed teacher on the high school level, I was not surprised. And that is adolescents who abuse drugs often have underlying mental health issues. I definitely saw that in my school. Could you address that? Yes, that's been my experience too. In working in both mental health and addictions, I met an awful lot of teenagers, both boys and girls, who were abusing a substance like marijuana, for example, and also had an underlying mental health issue. Uh, for example, it might have been anxiety. A lot of the kids that I worked with who were smoking marijuana, when I asked them to help me understand why they were using marijuana, the number one answer that came back was, it helps me with my anxiety. So that points to the issue that if a child is using a substance, it's very important that parents get a comprehensive assessment so that if there are underlying issues like anxiety or depression, that is brought to the surface too, because you'll want to tr treat both. You'll want to treat the drug use and you'll want to treat the underlying issue. But in a lot of cases, there is that underlying issue like anxiety or depression or some other mental health issue that often a child will be using to medicate by, by turning to a substance like marijuana or alcohol. Is that the primary <clears throat> difference you see between adolescents and adults who abuse drugs? I think there are two differences between adults and adolescents who uh, are abusing or, or become addicted to substance. Uh, the first, the first difference is in in brain development. Adults' brains are, are fully developed after age 24 or 25. The adult addict generally has a fully developed brain. Adolescents, on the other hand, their their brain is in the process of maturing. So when you take a 16 or 17 or, or even earlier age adolescent, it's very important to understand that their brain is in the process of developing. And when you introduce substances uh, like illicit drugs into a developing brain, you run the risk of that child not only becoming addicted or, or dependent on a substance, but you can do some real damage to that developing brain. So the first difference is in terms of brain development. Adult addiction, uh, the brain's usually fully developed. Adolescent addiction, the brain is in the process of maturing and developing. The second difference is in consequences. Adults who are addicted to a substance very often have faced catastrophic consequences as a result of their substance use. They may have lost a, a marriage. They may have uh, lost a job. They may have been incarcerated. And these are these can be catastrophic consequences that many adults who are addicted to a substance face throughout their life. Adolescents, on the other hand, have faced very few consequences. Their most severe consequence often is in the form of parents restricting them or grounding them. But nowhere near the catastrophic consequences that adults sometimes face when they're addicted to a substance. So two major differences between adults and adolescents, brain development and consequences. My experience with adolescents is that they can be quite clever in hiding their substance abuse. Absolutely. They uh, they fly under the parents' radar quite often. And, and I think that that's one of the things that, that I found when I was talking to parents about their child's substance abuse. When I would sit down with them and I would tell them their child's history of using a substance, what substances they were using, how often they were using, and how long they had been using. And then I would give them the diagnosis. They often would look at me and they would say, 
I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would look over at me and they would say, well, I knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. So as you point out, kids are very clever. They're very sneaky. They fly under the radar of many parents. And that's what catches a lot of parents off guard. They are surprised when they learn that their child has been using a substance. Kids are very clever. One of the things in your book, and it's actually in the back or toward the back of your book, is that one of the most abused substance is a common household product like correction fluid or markers or paint thinners, the inhalants that get them high. I remember about, I'd say two decades ago, there was a teenage girl, a middle school girl in our community who died after inhaling whiteout. And I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea that kids were inhaling that and that it could kill them. Can you help parents understand that? Yes. Throughout my book, there are chapters devoted to specific drugs, street drugs, because I wanted parents to at least have some information about the drugs that are out there that are available to kids. And one of the classifications is called inhalants. Basically, these are substances that are very toxic that can be inhaled. They tend to give a very rapid but not long-lasting high. The problem is that because it's not very long-lasting, kids will repeatedly use the substance, repeatedly use the inhalant, which can be very toxic to, to an adolescent's developing brain. So it'll give them a very quick high, but it's a very short-lived high, which then reinforces them repeatedly using it over and over and over again. And many of these substances, which we call inhalants, are common household that have a toxic type of fume to them. They could be, um, they could be paint. Uh, they could be household cleaning products. They could be markers, like you mentioned. And these can all be very, very abused by kids. We tend to see a lot of this used in very young teenagers because the products are so readily available around the house. As kids get older, they tend to move away from inhalants and then move on to other uh, illicit substances like either uh, marijuana or some of the other hardcore drugs. But parents need to be aware that if they have these substances in their house, these inhalants, they need to secure them and make sure that their kids don't have easy access to them because they may experiment with them just to see what the feeling will be. How does a parent know that their child is experimenting or abusing inhalants? And what should a parent do to avoid this trauma? The first thing to do is just do an inventory and see what's around the house and secure it. In terms of warning signs, I have those listed in my book, specific warning signs for inhalants. And some examples would be, you might notice a chemical odor on, on some of your children's clothing. You might notice uh, some paint or other stains on their, on their face or their hands. You might notice empty spray paint or solvent containers around the house. They're, they're empty. You might notice, uh, in terms of behavior, uh, some slurred speech from your child or perhaps some nausea or loss of appetite. You might notice some lack of coordination, irritability, depression. So those are some of the warning signs, and I've got those listed in my book. Just be aware that these substances 
if you have them around the house. And I say the same thing for prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs uh, or even alcohol. Um, you need to do the best you can to secure those substances so that your child doesn't have easy access to them. They may try them just out of curiosity. You need to really try to make it very difficult for them to have easy access to those. I got the feeling from your book that overall drug abuse seems to be going down, although it's still frequent. Is that a misconception on my part, or is there some good news in all of this? Well, it, it depends on the drug. Um, you know, let's take smoking cigarettes, for example. That's at an all-time low. Kids are not smoking cigarettes anywhere near what they did in the past. It's less than 1%. So there's some good news in the fact that kids aren't smoking as many cigarettes as they used to. However, on the downside, they have switched from smoking nicotine in the form of cigarettes or cigars to inhaling nicotine by vaping it. Um, uh, kids are still attracted to alcohol and marijuana. Those are still the two primary substances that we see in the adolescent population. There is some experimentation and some use of the harder core drugs like LSD and cocaine and, uh, and some misuse of prescription drugs like Ritalin and Adderall. But those tend to be like less than 5% of high school seniors. What we have noticed, though, in the last three years has been a tremendous surge in the number of, of, of teenagers who are vaping substances. And by vaping, I mean it takes a chemical, it takes a substance, it turns it into a vapor, which the child then inhales. And they use, they use various instruments to do that. Some of them look like pins. Some of them look like USB drives. So they're very hard to, for, for, for parents sometimes and teachers sometimes to recognize that the kids are using these for the purpose of inhaling a substance. But the, the vaping of these substances in the last three years has just exploded. Uh, for example, three years ago, 9% of high school seniors were vaping marijuana, 9%. Today, it's 22%. Three years ago, 18% of high school seniors were vaping nicotine, 18%. It's now 34%. So these increases have been rather dramatic in the last three years where, where kids are turning to vaping to get the substances like nicotine uh, and marijuana. That, that, is, that is becoming more and more of a problem. Is the danger to the developing brain as dangerous with vaping nicotine as it is with inhaling something like whiteout or gasoline or paint thinner? Well, they're both very toxic to the brain. Uh, so depending upon the age of the child, depending on the extent of the use, the damage that's done can be very variable. Uh, if a child experiments with a, with one of these substances once or twice, that's much different than if they get into a uh, a situation where they're repeatedly using this uh, using the substance. So the earlier the, the the child begins to use substances, the longer that they use it, and the frequency that they use it all contribute to potentially the damage that can be done. Because remember, this child, this adolescent brain, is in the process 
process of maturing and developing and creating critical areas in the brain. So anytime we introduce a toxic substance, um, like an inhalant, for example, or marijuana or nicotine, we run the risk of doing some damage to that developing brain. Do you see or could you address the difference in gender? Who are more at risk, girls or boys, for abusing drugs? Well, let me say, because that's a very good question, that all children are at risk. There is no child that is completely protected from exposure to these substances. All kids are at risk. There are protective environments, but no child is totally protected. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your income is. It doesn't matter whether you go to church. All children are at risk, and parents need to understand and appreciate that. In terms of boys or girls, what we know is that boys are more likely to binge drink alcohol than girls. Girls will drink, but boys tend to binge drink. And by binge drink, I mean take in a lot of alcohol in a short period of time. Boys are also, it seems, at higher risk of of abusing over-the-counter drugs than girls are. So they will they will abuse drugs that uh, are over the counter, easily accessible in drugstores. Boys are also more likely to become dependent or to abuse multiple substances, whereas girls may focus just on one substance. Boys are more likely to experiment with more than one substance. When we look at the underlying issues as to why boys and girls may be using a substance, boys oftentimes there's a conduct disorder, there's a behavioral disorder, or there might be a learning disorder. With girls, often it will be depression or some type of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And also for both boys and girls, many times it's a high level of anxiety, which is pushing them to use a substance like marijuana. Uh, Like I say, most of the uh, boys and girls that I worked with who were smoking marijuana, they were using it to medicate anxiety. I have seen children who have been in clinics for their substance abuse without really addressing those underlying mental health issues. And then as a society or as a school or parents or teachers, we wonder why there's so much relapse and these kids are back in these programs. How do you get the word out that it is ridiculous to try to address a substance abuse if you have not first addressed what is causing the anxiety, what is causing the post-traumatic stress disorder? How do we educate the public, parents and grandparents, that you have to look at this? I would say, first of all, read my book, uh, because that's a major point uh, in, in my book is as, as to why, if you suspect your child is using any type of substance, you need to get what I refer to in the book as a comprehensive assessment. And I have a chapter that that helps parents understand what is involved in a comprehensive assessment. 
the comprehensive assessment looks beyond just addictions. That's an important assessment. And certainly as a parent, you will want to get an addictions assessment from uh, a licensed addiction professional because that's going to give you the information in terms of your child's use of the substance, what substances they're using, how often they've been using, uh, and so forth. But you need to go beyond that. You need to get a psychological assessment or a neuropsychological assessment because that's going to tell you whether or not there's this underlying issue that might be contributing to your child's use of the substance. It's going to uncover these personality issues or these, these emotional issues that your child may be struggling with that, that you may not have known. You may not know that your child is having a lot of anxiety, or if you do suspect they're having anxiety, you may not know uh, how troublesome it is for that child. So that psychological test, that psychological assessment or neuropsychological assessment will give you a lot of information. And if it reveals that your child doesn't have any issues, that's great. But if it does show that your child has some type of underlying issue, then you have that information because you're absolutely right, uh, Carolyn. If a child has both a substance abuse issue and an underlying issue that they're using the substance to medicate, it's absolutely essential that both be treated. You can't just treat the marijuana use and ignore the anxiety, because if you do, the child may stay away from marijuana for a short period of time, but ultimately they're going to relapse and start the cycle again because they're using the substance to medicate that underlying issue. So both issues, if they're present, need to be treated. You mentioned earlier was boys tend to have a higher diagnosis of conduct disorder. Will you tell our listeners what that is? Well, it's basically a behavioral disorder, and it does appear in girls, too. I don't want to make it sound as if it's just exclusively boys, but it, it conduct disorder, you you probably notice it as a parent because your child is acting out in extreme, in extreme ways. There are different types of behavioral or conduct disorders. Again, this is something that, that a psychological assessment will point out to you. It's likely to be uncovered if it's there, and, and that gives it's back to the point of getting this comprehensive assessment done because there could be any number of issues that are involved. When I was working with young teenagers, a lot of it involved anxiety, a lot of it involved depression. There were some emerging personality disorders that were coming to surface. There were some learning disability issues that we learned about. So there could be a lot of issues going on. And I don't mean to scare parents because this, these disorders are, are certainly not affecting every child. But the point is, if they're there, the earlier you can find out about it and the earlier you can get treatment, the quicker you can resolve these issues and help that child. That's a very good point. From an educational standpoint, by the time a child is in middle school or high school, it's been my experience that it's almost too late. That has to start because those behaviors you usually see in elementary school. I, I've worked with first graders who had obvious issues and parents are reluctant sometimes to have their children evaluated because they think, oh, it's just, you know, he's only six. Well, only six, if your child is throwing a desk across the classroom, 
there is a major issue. If it's not addressed, it may lead to conduct disorder diagnosis and substance abuse. And very well, if you have those indications early on, early elementary school, the sooner you can get the assessment and the sooner you can get treatment if it's needed, the more likely you're going to be able to to get a handle on this. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want it to progress. You don't want it to progress through elementary school and middle school. And then by the time the child is in high school, the conduct and the behavior and possibly the substance use uh, has gotten to be uh, much more Severe. So again, the earlier you can pick up on these signals and intervene to get the assessments and the treatment if necessary, the more likelihood that you're going to be able to make a lot of progress in getting this issue or whatever the issues are under control. I'd also like to talk about an issue for girls. The girls that I worked with, a lot of them had uh, eating disorders. Many of them were harming themselves. But in a lot of cases, it was either because of depression or it was because of a very high level of anxiety. What I was dealing with was mostly young girls who had developed an eating disorder or were harming themselves as a way to uh, relieve what I call an intolerable thought or feeling or memory. And many times it was either it was either anxiety or depression. Sometimes it might involve bullying or some type of abusive behavior, perhaps at school by some uh, peers. Do you see a difference in ethnicities or socioeconomic strata? I don't see a lot of that. There may be some in terms of the ethnic background of a, of a child. Some of the research that's done will point to how certain ethnic groups might be either moving towards or away from marijuana use if you look at the long term. The way I look at it is every child is vulnerable to being captured by either alcohol or some type of drug use. It really doesn't matter where you live or what your income is or, or what your race is. The, the important message for parents is every child is vulnerable. So you need to protect that and recognize it and stay on top of it. Learn what the warning signs are so that you know what to look for. Learn what the assessments are if you need them. And be prepared to to look in terms of what the treatment options are for your child because there is no one treatment that's appropriate for every child. So you need to know what some of those treatment options are that I have in my book. And just be prepared. Don't, don't become paranoid about this this issue. Don't become frightened about it because knowledge is power. And that's why I wrote my book. I wanted to empower parents. I wanted to give them the basic information so that they felt more comfortable dealing with this issue and were just more aware of it. So don't become paranoid, but become educated, become knowledgeable and know what's available for you in the event that you need it. And also I would say, be hopeful. Because there is treatment. Kids can get through this. Families can get through this. And one last point I would make, or one further point I would say, is if you're a parent involved with a child who's abusing a substance, you need help too. It's not just the child that needs help. You as a parent need support. You need help. And and I wrote in a parent workbook to give some support to parents, but it may be a close friend. It may be a relative. It might be a professional counselor. But if you're a parent who's, who's going through this with your child, please get some help for yourself. Build a support network and get some support for yourself. 
I saw where there were often issues dealing with parental abuse or perhaps genetic issues involving children abusing drugs. I think being honest and being aware of family dynamics and family history is important. I think it's very important. And many times what we will see is it's not only the child that needs treatment and help. Many times the entire family needs treatment and needs help. When I was at Menninger, when we would have a patient, whether it was an adolescent or adult, come into the hospital for, for treatment uh, for both mental health and, and substance abuse, they had a social worker assigned to them and to the family. And there was a lot of family work done as well as individual work with, with the student or with the patient. Because many times it's the entire family system that is involved. It may be the child who's going through the substance abuse, but that substance abuse is affecting the entire family. And there may be a lot of issues that the family is dealing with too, a lot of family dynamic issues. So many times it's not just the child that needs help and support in treatment. Many times the families can benefit from treatment as well. One of the things that you've talked about is the developing brain, where the brain develops from the back to the front. And the front of the brain is like the control center, the executive director of the body. Can you give us a little more insight into why adolescents would have a more difficult time putting the brakes on illicit drug use because that part of the brain hasn't developed fully yet? Yes, that's, that's an important issue. And, and, and it's why I have a chapter on, on the neuroscience uh, in my book, which explains to parents in very easy language, not technical, not complicated, but very straightforward language, how these drugs affect the teenage brain. And you're right, our brains mature from the back to the front. So the last part of the brain to get developed, fully developed in the early 20s, is the front part of the brain, which is where the prefrontal cortex is located. And that's an important part of the brain because that prefrontal cortex is responsible for abstract reasoning, higher order thinking, the ability to weigh pros and cons and hopefully make good decisions. Well, in an adolescent brain, and the younger the adolescent, the less development, that part of the brain, which really regulates, uh, you know, their compulsive or impulsive behaviors is not fully developed. So the adolescent is much more likely to, uh, to, to take on impulsive, uh, impulsive behaviors. That part of the brain that, that sort of would put the brakes on that behavior is just not fully developed. So they don't in many times have the full capacity to be able to reason through things. They're much more likely to act very compulsively on the spur of the moment. Um, and, and, and that becomes a more risky behavior for them. And I think that's important if you have a family where there is mental health issues or if there's also substance abuse where the parents also do not have the capacity to recognize it in themselves. They don't recognize it in their children. And so the children don't have that external stop sign to go by either. 
That's right. And that makes it more vulnerable for them. So it, it just becomes a very risky period of time in adolescence. Um, that adolescent brain is in the process of developing so many of the critical functions that we need in, in adulthood are being formed. Those connections are being formed in the brain. And that's why I stress many, many times that it is so important that we do everything we can to protect that child's brain and the development of that brain. I read in your book about how marijuana, about marijuana use, and that often children are using marijuana multiple times a day and even vaping it. I'm concerned because so many states, including Virginia, just recently enacted a law that says it's okay, it's legal for adults to use marijuana. And I'm wondering what impact this lessening of, of, you know, being punitive to adults, is that enticing teenagers more or is it, it doesn't make a difference because they've used it regardless or they would use it regardless? Well, I think what it presents to the adolescent who really can't reason the differences between adults and, and adolescents is it presents the image to adolescents that, well, if it's being legalized in more and more states, how harmful can it really be? And it's that misperception because what they miss in that misperception is, again, the adolescent brain. What may be okay for adults who have a, a fully mature brain is not necessarily okay for an adolescent whose brain is in the process of developing. But again, adolescents aren't capable of drawing all of these connections. They, they operate in a very simplistic world. If it's okay for adults, it's got to be okay for me. If, if states are legalizing it, how bad can it be? Well, it can still be bad. Um, you know, alcohol is legal for adults, but it can be very bad for adolescents. Marijuana may be legal in some states for, for adults, but it can be very bad for adolescents. And the example that I would give you is that the teenagers that I worked with who were smoking a lot of marijuana multiple times a day, these kids' IQs were average to above average. So these were very, very bright young men and women, but they were smoking marijuana often during the day. And when the uh, psychological tests came back, what I noticed was that many times the processing speed of their brain was below average. Their short-term memory was impaired. So if they're sitting in the classroom, they might not be getting everything that the teacher is trying to, to teach them, or they may not remember it all. And their motivation was very low. So these type of effects on the brain, because it's developing, um, can have some consequences for these young men and women. But the perception uh, that because adolescents are because adults are legally smoking marijuana, I think some kids do have the perception that it can't be all that harmful. I know we've addressed this. Tell grandparents and parents, what are the signs to look for? What should grandparents and parents do if they suspect your children or grandchildren are experimenting or are addicted to illegal drugs? Well, the first thing to do is learn the warning signs. I have warning signs for alcohol use. I have warning signs for marijuana use. 
I have warning signs for a child that might be developing an eating disorder. I have warning signs for a child that might be harming themselves. So the first thing to do is learn about the warning signs so that you know what to look for. And as a general rule, uh, what I recommend to parents and grandparents is pay attention to the changes that you see in your child. You know the child better than anyone. So pay attention to these changes that you see in your child. Don't don't assume that the changes or the behavior that you're seeing is just normal adolescent acting out. It may very well be that, but it also may be an indicator that there's something else going on under the surface. And the more of these changes that you see and the length of these changes uh, should be a red flag that there might be something going on. Some examples would be a child who used to be making very good grades and now the grades are declining. A child who was very social and outgoing now becomes very quiet and secretive. A child who used to enjoy playing sports now no longer wants to participate in sports. Or a child who was very open about who their friends were and introduced you to their friends. You may have even known their fam friends of family now becomes very secretive of who their friends are. Pay attention to these changes that you see in your child and, and pay attention to the number of changes that you see how long these changes last. If you see a change and it lasts for a day or two, okay, that might just be some, some particular event that happened. But if these changes tend to linger on and on or become more extensive or more severe, those should be red flags that indicate to you, okay, there's something that needs to be done. So now what do you do? if you see these warning signs and you become uh, concerned. The first thing you should do is have a discussion with your child and, and talk to them about what your concerns are. That's likely to go one of two ways. The child will either become argumentative and defensive, or the child may actually share some information with you that you didn't know. But regardless of how that conversation goes, the next step is to get the comprehensive assessments that I talk about in my book so that you get a complete picture from professionals about what's going on. And if, if there's a diagnosis and a treatment plan, you have the benefit of knowing that too. And how would one go about finding a professional? Where would be a good resource? You can start with your uh, primary care physician. If you have one, many times they can make referrals to addictions counselors or psychologists that can do uh, most of these testing. You can talk to the school counselor. Many times the school counselor can refer you to an addictions counselor like myself who can do the addictions part of it. They can refer you to a psychologist that specializes in adolescence that can do the psychological or the neuropsychological testing. So I would begin with my family physician and my school counselor. And then you can always contact your local mental health uh, association, the National Institute for Mental Health, NAMI. Many times they have referrals that they can make, and they can also provide some good resources for you as a parent and for your family. So there are resources out there, and there are people that can help direct you to those resources. I would encourage parents and grandparents to not wait if they suspect there's a problem, because I have worked with families who had to wait months to have a neuropsych exam performed for their children. So it's not something that's going to be a quick overnight 
diagnosis. That's a good point. Delaying is is never a good option. Delaying getting any type of an assessment or test is not something that you want to do. So the minute that you suspect there's an issue and, and you become concerned, that's the time to move forward with starting the process of getting the assessments done, getting the diagnosis done, and then working to put together a treatment plan for your child. The sooner you begin that, the sooner that recovery journey can begin. I would appreciate your telling our listeners again the name of your book, where they can find it, and how can they get a hold of you? The book is is titled The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. There's a parent workbook that accompanies it. Both are available on Amazon, and you can also visit uh, the book's website, which is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. That's www.helptheaddictedchild.com helptheaddictedchild.com. On that website, you will find endorsements, you'll find book reviews, you'll find a sample chapter. You can read a little bit about both the book and the parent workbook. And there's a link that will take you directly to Amazon where you can purchase the book. It's available in electronic form for people who like to read on their Kindle. It's available for 99 cents, or you can get the paperback version if you prefer that. Both are very reasonably priced because I wanted parents to be able to have these resources Uh, at a very, very low cost. There's also a link where you can send me a message or send me a comment. Uh, You can just click on it and then write a note or ask me a question, and that will come directly to me. So if you have any questions or if there are issues that uh, that you would like me to take a look at, uh, any type of information, feel free to contact me through the website. All of those links will be in the show notes. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.